Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Louisa De Silva to the show. She works for an organization called Iron and Earth, who is helping navigate the transition to a net zero economy. We all know of the targets that are out there. They're big, they're broad, and honestly, they're kind of scary. So what does it actually mean for us as maintenance people to start moving to this net zero economy? You know, this is a passion talk topic of mine and so we touch on far more than just the net zero economy and maintenance but we also talk about other impacts that it's going to have on the um, supply chain and other areas that maintenance does touch and rely on so thank you for listening thank you for tuning in before we get to our episode a quick message from our sponsor greenman and associates Many asset management initiatives fail because leaders do not know where to start or how to sustain change and drive it deep through the organization. Discover how to successfully implement asset management systems with Change Management for Asset Management, AM502, a specialized course from the Greenman Asset Management Academy. AM502 is an online, self-paced masterclass on leading change in asset-dependent firms. AM502 is based on the industry-leading ReGap Sustainability Model and delivers best practices for both the cultural and the governance elements of asset management systems. Visit us today, www.greemanassetmanagement.com forward slash academy forward slash. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Luisa De Silva to the show. How is it going today, Luisa? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I'm really excited about this conversation. Luisa works for or is the executive director of Iron and Earth, and um, an organization that is doing a lot of work that I'm pretty excited for. So I'll let Luisa start and tell us a little bit about herself and a little bit about Iron and Earth. And then we can jump more into the, the topic today of decarbonization and how that's going to affect maintenance. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. And I'm really glad to be here today with you and your listeners. Uh, yeah, so a bit about myself. I'm a geoscientist by training. I started my career in the Alberta oil patch. I was working on the rigs, um, logging core. So I would have been working with probably a lot of the listeners of this program. Uh, and it was a great community. I really liked working there. Everybody was very tight knit. You know, we worked 24 hours, seven days a week. And sometimes you couldn't get to the kitchen in time to grab your dinner. Somebody else brought you your meal out. And I loved that sense of community, right? It was, it was just really wonderful to be in that kind of setting. But the reality is, of course, that a lot of us ended up in the oil patch, not because we chose to have that kind of job, but because at the time that was where the energy economy and a lot of the economy in Canada was booming. Um, I had coworkers coming from all over the country, from BC to Newfoundland, you know, Halifax, um, just everywhere. And, and we all kind of culminated into this melting pot of, you know, uh, oil patch culture. And so it, it really kind of grows on you and really builds that community. And about five years ago, uh, you know, a lot of people suffered a lot of job losses, but 100,000 jobs were lost in the oil patch. And the founders of Iron and Earth, really, they saw the writing on the wall. And they said, you know, we can't continue to go through this um, 
massive roller coaster of ups and downs. You know, when when things are great, it's so easy to find a job and and you know people are throwing jobs at you. When things are lousy, you know, it's really hard times. I mean, it you you you're hard pressed to to you know get a job to put food on the table and keep a roof over your head. So the founders of Iron and Earth they saw that and they saw that you know there needed to be something in place for fossil fuel workers here in Canada to be able to transition out of what the rules that they had are um, into something more in the net zero economy, keeping in line with our climate accord, keeping in line with, um, you know, we don't want to be um, polluting. We want to be positive. We want to be in that net zero space. And that's why Iron and Earth was created. That's how it was born. Um, and what we now have five years on is a very large community of supporters and fossil fuel workers who see that. They see the future and they see that Canada needs to move to the net zero economy and they're excited to, and they want to. They want to be working in these jobs that either in wind or solar or maintenance or retrofits or whatever it is. They see the opportunities are there and they know that by working in this economy that they're leaving a better place for their children, for their grandchildren, and it's more holistic. Uh, that sounds super, uh, really interesting. And, you know, I, I really, it really resonates with me being, you know, I've worked in the mining industry most of my career. Um, the first part I was uh, living in Edmonton, working for an oil analysis company, doing reliability consultants and working with a lot of the oil industry in Alberta. And it's, it, you're right, it, it's a place that has such great culture and a lot of great people and a lot of great ideas. And, you know, if we're, most people are working there because it's, you know, the job that we need, it's the industry that's there. And we recognize that we need to challenge that and we need to move to a place where we're reducing our carbon footprint overall. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've noticed is, you know, companies are coming out with a lot of different targets. So my, my company, Tech Resources, for instance, um, we've got a net zero by 2050 and a 33% reduction by 2030. And like, that's, that's a big target, even the 30% reduction for how we, how people operate today. And it, it takes a lot of creative and paradigm shifting work to actually get to that space. And so this is why, you know, when I heard about Iron and Earth, I got really excited because I'm looking at what's coming in the maintenance space. And a lot of these targets are being set without maintenance in mind. And, a lot, and inevitably, a lot of things are getting rolled out to achieve these aggressive targets that need to be maintained. They need to be worked on. It's an entirely different skill set. So, you know, I think about the mining industry. If we're looking at bringing in electric trucks, I think Caterpillar announced that they're working on building them. Komatsu's done a similar thing. The skill set you need, it used to be a bunch of mechanics or in Australia, fitters. Now you need more electricians. And we don't have many electricians. Uh, and most of them aren't in the industrial space. Or if they are, they're not working on that type of equipment. So how do you see that transition, that is there, uh, or what do you see, I guess, for that skills gap that we have today? And when we're looking at those 2030 and 2050 goals, what needs to happen? Yeah, well, 
in the fossil fuel industry, for example, there's a wealth of skills that, you know, really can be tapped into to get to those targets. And so, for example, with electricians, um, some of the programs that we run, for example, are specifically like solar skills for wind, uh, solar skills for electricians. And so it's just a little bit of reskilling or upskilling that people need. It's not that long. It's something that people can achieve uh, definitely less than 12 months. But for example, for Alberta or like our inner earth, we run programs where people can be uh, just upskilling within a much shorter period of time and translating what they already know into what is needed into you know, the, the new careers that they would be looking at. Um, leaving maintenance out of the conversation is, is never a good idea because ultimately once the infrastructure is installed, that skill set, you know, of doing the installation either moves to another location or, you know, does a, an installation somewhere else. But it, it, with what has just been installed, now that's where it passes to maintenance, right? And this is where maintenance people are needed in order to know, in order to be able to keep that infrastructure up and running at optimal efficiency. So more skills development in that area working on or building on existing skill sets is the way to go forward. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. They're already there. I mean, you speak to unions or labor groups, they have plenty of people in their uh, workforce ready and capable to be moving into the net zero economy. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And like the, like you said, the skills and the trades that are there are, they're hugely talented individuals and it's not a stretch. Like the technology that's being put in for net carbon is, isn't new technology. It's just being rolled out at a scale that we haven't done before. Uh, you know, I think about, um, I'm from the mining background, of course, so I always default to mining, uh, but we've got the, the trolley assist systems at mines where you've got a truck hooked up to a catenary system. And you know, when you think about decarbonization, we're going to get more of those. Those are going to go across the industry and maintaining those is, is nothing new to us. We know how to do that. We just need to hire more people and train more people that actually can do that work and make sure that our, our crews are set up for it. So, you know, I look at what we have to do on a mine today and we've got, like I said, the mechanics and electricians supporting a little bit of it, but it's going to shift to more, you know, instead of 70-30 mechanics to electricians, it's going to be 70-30 electricians to mechanics because we're still going to have those steering and brake systems that you need that trade for. But, you know, what seems more of a, a better option is looking at companies upskilling their workforce and, and getting them dual certificates and, and different certifications that way and bringing in this training in-house. So, you know, how hard is it for a company? What is that training program look like? Like you, you said that you can do that in 12 months. Um, or less. Or less. So, you know, this is one of my big concerns when I think about this is how do we get everybody skill, upskilled? And 12 months is like, that's not a long period of time. So what does that look like? What is that? Yeah, so I should probably clarify that, you know, the 12 months or less is based on our abacus poll that we ran last year. And that's what a lot of people would be willing to participate in and what they would be happy to participate in and think that going through that, they would then be ready to move into the net zero economy. 
But what could it look like for companies? Well, it could look like exactly like working with groups like ours with Iron and Earth. It could be that we go in and we deliver those training skills to um, the, the company so that people can be upskilled. But it doesn't have to be Iron and Earth, right? We, we know that you know, we're not primarily uh, a training uh, company. There are plenty of uh, companies, post-secondaries, unions, labor groups that run their own training. And I think what is really key to all of this is that you have to look at who you have, who are the workers that you have, and you evaluate what it is that you need, what it is that they have right now, what's that skills gap, what's the identified skills gap, and how do you close that skills gap? And a lot of the times, it doesn't need to be anything uh, elaborate. It can be existing reskilling or upskilling programs that already exist with existing providers. So companies can bring those people in, or people can be um, going through these programs with you know, the unions that they belong to. It really doesn't have to be complicated, but kind of key to all of this is that there needs to be funding. There needs to be funding so that that net zero economy is one, created, so that the jobs follow, and two, the companies need to be able to move into that space. So they need to be able to repurpose their infrastructure, right? And retool and, and pivot what it is that they already have. So again, it kind of comes back to the funding, but it's funding to, to create the jobs and it's also funding so that companies can move into that space. Because let's remember, right? Anytime that there's any kind of change, and this has happened you know, historically in the past, we can count a number of times, without the, the capital to be able to put that existing uh, infrastructure at the outset, it's an enormous cost to get there. And one that companies might be reticent to, to move towards because they already have an existing product and they're making a profit off of it. So they might just be more willing to stay in that space, you know, in the interest of their shareholders and whatnot. But if we're looking at what does the future look like and here's where our targets are and we need to be moving to this, the capital has to be there. The capital has to be there so that the, the outset is, is created so that companies can move into that. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it more, more and more. And, you know, one of the first questions when you go to buy shares now, it seems on the, on the stock trading platforms is, you know, what are your goals? What are your environment sustainability goals, your environment goals? And let's make sure we look at companies that only meet, match your goals. And I think about that and I'm like, that's, you know, that's really shifting because now it's not just about the profit, uh, the, the profit. It's about the entire footprint. It's about the company itself. Like, what are they supporting? It used to be, you know, we, we took business and like business and politics and all that stuff was very separate, but it's becoming more and more, it's becoming closer and closer. And people are really deciding where they put their money based on the impact a company has. And it, it, it's great to see because it's, you know, consumers driving the changes that they want to see, which is pretty exciting. You know, I think about the companies and I think about uh, all, all the industries in, in Canada and around the world. And, you know, if we want to upscale, we've got trade schools and, and, you know, the large companies are funding trade schools so that they can, you know, go in and advertise and get people to work for them. Um, they go to university, same things, um, the advertisements there and Traditionally, the advertisements haven't been in the, you know, in that electrical and environmentally sustainable space. Like I know when I was at university and we had our, 
courses on environmental stuff. It wasn't sponsored by any company. It was the university doing it because it's, you know, the right thing to do, but it's, there was no funding for those programs. So are the, is that changing? And we're seeing more and more fundings for those programs and, and companies stepping up to the plate to make sure that we're getting that funding for those different training programs that are needed to, to move in, uh, into the net zero space? I think we're starting to see that change happening, yes. Uh, we're seeing more private companies that are interested in organizations like ours, for example, and supporting that reskilling and, and upskilling initiatives. Um, they, they see the, the need for people, for the skilled talent, like, like we've been saying. And so for them, what better way than to ensure that, you know, it's, it's part of what they're doing. And you're right, what you said initially there about the companies that are not being concerned about ESG, that is becoming like a negative tick on their books. And so that also helps the companies, the ones that are participating actively in these reskilling or upskilling or training programs and being supportive of them to also be um, having that positive ESG effect. It's, it's a very strong signal that it sends. And it sends the signal that they are committed to making this happen. Yeah, exactly. Now, I do want to shift a little bit and, and look more at the, the individuals and, and what we can do as engineers and technicians to set ourselves up for the upcoming, the, the industry changes that are coming. Because, you know, it takes a special kind of person to listen to a maintenance and reliability podcast, likely on not their work time. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, we've got a we've got a group of people who listens here that are, are very eager to improve themselves and, and find the next best way to do things. So where can we start looking to start not just marketing ourselves, but actually learning and understanding what's going to be needed in this next space? Yeah. So Iron and Earth just launched a climate career portal this week. It's at www.climatecareerportal.com. And it's really something that Canada has been needing for a long time. It is a one-stop shop online tool to help anybody across the board understand how they can transition into the net zero economy. So the way it works is that you can go on there and you type in what your existing uh, role or job title is, and then the portal will show you how it is that your existing skills are needed in the net zero economy. It will tell you across which uh, technologies, be it like wind, solar, geothermal, hydrogen, et cetera, retrofitting, energy efficiency, what kind of jobs you would be looking at, what kind of jobs would be available within those spaces. It also shows um, where the projects are located across Canada. So you can see if there's something, you know, in your backyard. It also lists off all of the training providers that are available across the country so that you can search and see what programs it is that works best within your lifestyle and where you are in your career. There's also a jobs board there. Um, and we're going to be expanding it to also have mentorship because it's one of the things that um, workers have been telling us for years is that they really need to see how they can get into that economy. So what better way than to be mentored by somebody who's already there? So I'd say that to anybody who's listening and who wants to make that transition, please go use the portal. Right now, it is the only tool in Canada that exists that will give you this one-stop comprehensive 
understanding of how your skills can be used. Well, that's that's so exciting to hear, and um, I'm going to check it out right after we're we're done recording here, and um, I'll make sure that link for that is put into the podcast description, and I'll also post it on our, our our LinkedIn post. So if you if you're listening to this on your drive, you can you can just follow us on LinkedIn, and you'll see it there. So, um, well, and that's a really cool service. And you know, one of the questions I get a lot is, how do I get into maintenance and reliability? And so it, it's never easy to break into a new industry or a new, a new job type or, or anything like that. And I know for maintenance, it's most of us land in the maintenance and reliability space because we just got a job there. We saw a job and we applied for it and we got it. We're mechanical engineers or other types of engineers and, and we come from different backgrounds that just fall into it. But you don't go to school to be a maintenance engineer go to school to be a mechanical engineer but it doesn't mechanical engineers are needed everywhere they're needed in the the net zero economy they're needed in in the oil industry still and they're needed everywhere and it's just understanding that gap to and looking at okay where do I want to be in a year and where am I today and you know how do I bridge that gap and who do I need to talk to and so having that resource available for people to get into the net zero economy is is amazing because it's you know i know i've looked into it the the few times i've done a job search i always start at renewables how do i you know i want to work for the wind industry or want to work for um you know i've looked at nuclear power plants as well and like a whole bunch of other things and and you know they're not easy to get into but if you have that roadmap that can help you lead you to that destination that you want to go to and that's really exciting. Um, and that's so valuable for anybody that's thinking about their next step in their career, or even you yes. know, for, for companies that are looking uh, at, I need people, I want, I need to get the best talent into my organization. How do I set myself up to meet their goals as well? So yes, exactly. And, you know, you never know when there's going to be an opportunity coming up because there's so much commitment to moving Canada into this space that there are opportunities being created all the time. So for example, here at Iron and Earth, we have a program that we're running next month, just south of Edmonton, and we have spots for 30 people to come and learn how to uh, install solar panels or install a wind turbine. Um, and that's completely free. You know, people would get the upskilling for free. So. You never know where the opportunity is going to come from. So definitely keep your ear to the ground and, um, and see what's coming up. Oh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Now, I do need to ask, because we do have a lot of listeners, um, uh, mostly in the United States, some in Australia, and, and a decent following in Europe as well. Um, is there other organizations or, or other groups that you know of for people in, in those locations that they can they can start looking um, to find how they can make a difference in their country. Yeah, Iron and Earth is a bit unique in that sense. Um, we, we are one of the only organizations that occupy this space of uh, you know, these kinds of workers that are looking to implement these kinds of solutions. Um, in other countries, there are other organizations, but I don't think that they work specifically with workers. Um, a lot of the other organizations are more so about how do we have a just transition or maybe, you know, the net zero um, or organizations where they are 
you know, delivering uh, training. I don't know any that I can name offhand right now, but um, I'd say that Canada's probably pretty unique in this space because we are the fourth largest oil producer in the world. And so we do have an enormous workforce. We have 280,000 people that work directly in fossil fuels, and I think close to 800,000 that work indirectly. So, you know, we're talking about like 130th of the population of the country being potentially displaced from their jobs. So from that perspective, we are fairly unique. So there is a lot of organizations here in Canada that occupy that space. I would imagine that, you know, the UK, because they're also an oil producer, Australia, because they have a lot of mining, um, and in other countries that they might have something similar, but they might also need like an iron earth chapter there to help them along their way. Yeah, that sounds like hey, there's no reason it can't be global, right? <laughs> exactly. It's a global exactly. problem. <laughs> yep. And, and, you know, if we move just away from the, the oil industry transition as well, because we are seeing it, you know, other industries outside fossil fuel that need to move down this road. I mentioned mining there with, you know, looking at electric trucks or hydrogen trucks or uh, whatever it might be, the trolley system. What other industries that you know of are... are are making big transitions like that that are that are setting these aggressive targets and have have a big uh, big gap to get to those targets. Oh, I think everybody is doing it. I mean, the first two that come to mind is forestry. Forestry has really aggressive targets as well. Um, a combination of you know having carbon capture coming so much from forests, but also trying to meet the lumber needs of and lumber demands of you know, keeping up with housing, for example. Um, but supply chain, like supply chain is is the biggest one. And, and I would love to see, you know, a, a carbon footprint uh, everywhere, like on, on like end of life products to see how much of a carbon footprint it was. Because if I'm ordering something and it's come from China <laughs> or if it's come from down the road, um, that makes a huge difference to, to the... Uh, you know, what your end carbon use is. So supply chain definitely has, but, but it really affects everybody, like even banking, right? Which doesn't strike us at first. Uh, even banking has, you know, their transition to net zero and it could be because of where they're placing their investments or, you know, we're coming out, out of a pandemic right now where a lot of people have been working from home and that's also been, you know, keeping carbon out of the atmosphere because people haven't been jumping in their car and being stuck in traffic for two hours each way to get to a job. So I don't think that there's an industry out there that's going to escape this transition. Everybody needs to pull together and everybody needs to get on board with, with making the transition to net zero. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, for one, I think I've said it multiple times on the show, I loved working from home and you know, where I, where I live, it, it was, it was crazy that, you know, 40, or it wasn't 40,000, 4,000 people thereabouts. One day it was decided everybody's going to work from home and 4,000 people moved to working from home just in my company. And then other companies around the world did similar things. And it, it was phenomenal. And where we have gotten in the technology, technology space with the cloud and, and, um, everything that's needed to do your job remotely it's all there and i think we found that companies 
can be more productive with people working from home. And you're right, it, it takes the cars off the road. It reduces the traffic, it reduces the noise, and it reduces the the carbon. It's, you know, our reliance on infrastructure. We, you know, if we don't have as many cars driving on the roads, we're not going to have as many accidents. There's a safety aspect to it. That's the dangerous part of most people's day is just driving to and from work. And exactly. even if you're in a high-risk job, uh, it's still more dangerous to drive than it is to actually do your job. And so it's, you know, the pandemic showed us an interesting, a, a new way to, that we can live and new way that we can help the environment. And it was, um, and we're starting to see some companies adopting more flex work and, you know, some are going full remote, others are going uh, partially remote, but you know, I've, I've heard of very few that are saying, you know what, we're going back to the office 100%. Uh, it's like nothing ever happened. Um, and so that's really exciting to see because it's, and, and I know for me, when I look, if I'm looking at a job, that's one of my requirements now is, you know, what can, how much commuting is there? Is there, is there that flex work or not? And um, then you make your decisions from that. And I've talked to a lot of different people uh, over the last couple of years and everybody's saying the same thing like that remote work is key to their next job so um and there's a nice net environment benefit to that as well so um, absolutely and and I, that's the strong point right is that where it's possible if you don't need to be traveling to and from work i think that that's really important that companies provide those opportunities we, we both know that of course there are people that have to do their job at a specific location, like you know, nurses and doctors, they have to be in the hospitals or you know, people that are working right at the mine site, they have to be there at the, at the literal coal face. But um, for those of us that don't need to be, why, why, why should we continue to contribute to that carbon in the atmosphere? Just let us work from home. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other interesting things um, that we've talked to, or that I've heard about is a lot of these smart grids and and their impact and i think about the maintenance industry of that and you know we went from having massive power plants you know four or five huge coal burning um, generators needed to power a city or power a, a region and now we're seeing more like little generators being scattered throughout and you know some of them are even you know in the neighborhood and, and that's supplying power but there's just the local neighborhood and, you know, what do you, what have you seen in that area? Like, how is that transition, you know, affecting the workers? Like, uh, it takes, do you see that it takes a lot more people to maintain those smart grids? Or is it kind of a one-to-one, -one we're just more remote in how we're maintaining those? I think from what I see, it's, it's just more of a, a remote situation. So the, the manpower needed is pretty much the same. Um, in that kind of situation, if you're in an urban area or if you're in a rural area or a completely remote area. Um, but of course, there are other things to be taken into consideration the more remote you go, which um, again, I'm going to go back to supply chain. But if you need parts to be coming in, you know, you need to be planning that well more in advance because it's going to take a lot longer to get to you. So then how do you plan that out uh, in terms of your energy needs? And I think that that then starts to change um, the management of the maintenance, right? Because then you should probably should be doing maintenance on these systems more frequently than you would in an area where things would be more available to you because you don't want to ever be um, out 
Yeah, absolutely. There's some, there's always some good math around part lead times and other things. And, you know, I'm interested to see when that carbon footprint piece comes into that calculation. And, you know, when we're, when we are looking at an outage or, or when we should do maintenance on something, you know, for the most part, parts are available. We can get them sent here for a cost and have them within a day or two, even some of the largest pieces. And that's obviously pretty carbon intensive. And so that just-in-time maintenance that we that we tend to strive for, we want to get the most out of our assets. And so we're running them right to the brink of failure and then we fix them. And, you know, being more proactive and um, it, it's kind of, it, it almost seems like it's, not environmentally friendly to change something sooner rather than later because you're you know you're putting more steel in and and you're replacing something before it's worn out so you know what have if anything have you seen on kind of that back-end supply chain that's coming out that's you know making it more effective and more improving those um the carbon footprint of the of the equipment that you know if we do change something earlier What's happening in the background to those pieces that we're sending out? Um, is that steel getting recycled in a, is that um, being recycled in a way that's lower carbon than producing new steel? I know there's a cost and things like that too. And batteries is a big one for that too. Um, that was a very scattered question. I hope, hope it made some sense there. <laughs> yeah, no, it does make sense. I don't have a lot of background in supply chain. So the only thing that I can speak to there is people that are in my network that are, are working in that space. So I know that the those people that work there, they are very concerned with the carbon footprint um, with the supply chain. And so it, it very much like, for example, with companies needing to show that they have their ESG, otherwise it's kind of dinging them. It's the same thing in the supply chain space, right? When uh, they need to be able to show that they are being carbon conscious. And you're right, this just-in-time um, way of existing in the past completely depends on a supply chain that will always be available to you. And time is, is no issue um, because mountains can be moved as long as you can throw enough money at it and get enough of, of a carbon footprint going. But I'm thinking about another company that I know that exists in Montreal, and I can't think of the name right now. But they've been quite innovative because what they've done is they've placed sensors on their mining trucks within all the moving parts, like where the engine and the motors are. And these sensors are constantly sending back information and they have people monitoring this data to see at what point in time are these parts going to potentially fail. And because they've had these sensors and because they've been able to change something out before the the, the failure happens or before it's really kind of getting worn down, they've actually seen an increase in productivity because then you're always operating the vehicle in this example at optimal efficiency rather than having maybe a few parts that start to wear down. That does affect your efficiency and it does affect your bottom line. So I am all for you know um, having things replaced to keep it optimal. Um, because ultimately that reduces your carbon footprint. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Like if you, you've got, um, you know, on that truck example, there's so many things that could impact your engine that makes your engine less fuel efficient. And if you can keep those things 
going um, and, and keep those things in good shape, then you're going to keep that carbon footprint for that unit way lower. And, um, you know, and a lot of we're supposed to change engines based off of how much fuel they burn, but there's, you know, nobody, it's hard to calculate and it's hard to actually measure that fully and effectively throughout its life cycle. So we just tend to default to hours. But, you know, when you think about, you know, as we get better at measuring that, then we're going to get to a space where like, okay, you know, if we can burn less fuel, then we also can make this part last longer. And so there's a benefit there as well. But there's also, I think about the, the oil that we put in, into the components. Um, and, you know, we've gone through a transition over the last 10, 20 years of moving to more synthetic oils. And it's more, it's been a fairly understated advantage of that, but that it does make things more fuel efficient as well. It makes, um, you know, when weather's cold, it's easier to start the equipment and that's where you burn a lot of your fuel. When, you know, you're up to speed, it's, it keeps things, keeps things from wearing quite as fast because of different lubricity things. And I could, I could really nerd out about lubrication and, and talk about why uh, there's a big fuel benefit, but we do see on fleets a one to 2% fuel efficiency gain just by moving from a 15W40 to a 5W40 um, for a diesel engine. And you think about that across all the cars and trucks that are running diesel in this case, like that's, that's a lot of savings. It's not much on maybe your personal vehicle, but on a mine of uh, 200 mining trucks or something, that's that's a lot. Absolutely, and, and you highlight a great point, which is um, sometimes we feel like all of the problems on moving towards climate solutions sit on our shoulders as consumers. And we, and we do carry quite a bit of that because our consumer choices dictate what companies provide to us. But there are going to be you know, a factor of 10 or 20 or 100 <laughs> carbon impact that companies make that it doesn't really have much of an impact on us. So one of the best examples that I heard in my life, um, I spent quite a bit of time down uh, in the Rotterdam Harbor, and I would see that there was ships just sitting there for 24 hours waiting to come into harbor to unload their cargo. This is well before the pandemic happened. <laughs> And the amount of fuel that they burn sitting there for those 24 hours, one person would never use in the lifetime on their car. And that kind of example of this ship sitting in the harbor happens thousands of times over every single day or every week in harbors around the world now made worse by the pandemic because they can't get enough of the you know, stuff off their ships. And so they've been sitting there maybe for seven days, right? we're talking about tens of thousands of liters of fuel. Literally, you could not use this in your lifetime. So, and, so, so I was just going to say, and, you know, my wife asked me this question the other day um, and she asked, how do we be more environmentally friendly? Like, how do we make a difference? And I was like, you know, there's lots of things we can do. You know, we can compost, we can do, do, uh, you know, make sure we're not idling our car and a whole bunch of different things. And I'm like, but at the end of the day, the impact you and I make isn't that large. What we need to do is get companies, big companies that are operating big fleets to actually make the difference because they're the ones that are contributing. And when you look at where the population sits in the world and where the carbon footprints are, it's not where there's a lot of people. It's where there's a lot of industry. 
and and oftentimes very few people. Um, and so it's you know looking at our organizations that are are running, and this is what I like about Iron and Earth and all these targets that are being set across the industries is that's where the meaningful impact is going to make. It's great that we as individuals put solar panels on our house and you know help that way, and that does make a difference. But we need to make a bigger difference you know, where we work. For me in the mining industry, I'm pretty excited to look at trolley and all these other things that can help make our, our minds better. Cause we, at the end of the day, we need all these minerals to produce a green economy. Um, but maybe I'm getting a little soapboxy at the moment. <laughs> um, so, you know, before we end, I do have one more question. Um, and, and it's really around, you know, we're, how do we encourage our companies? Like a lot of what we've talked about is moving to a greener economy. How do we encourage as, as employees of companies or how do we make it more of a difference in our own lives at the companies we work for um, to improve that carbon footprint and improve the ESG impacts on, from the organization? The only thing that I can think of for that is speak up. You know, don't keep it inside because companies, although yes, they are driven by profit, they also, by and large, want to be seen positively in the market, you know, in, in the country where they're operating. They don't want to be labeled as the polluter. They want to be labeled as, as something positive. So if, if you're an employee there and you start to see ways that the company can improve, move towards net zero, you know, start diversifying how they create energy or reducing their carbon footprint. Don't, don't keep that inside. Start talking about that. Um, because a lot of these climate solutions, they are making profits for companies, right? Um, the companies right now that are installing the most solar panels, wind turbines and whatnot, are a lot of the tech companies, they're just buying up farms and they're plonking down these things. And it's benefiting them. It's benefiting them because it reduces their energy bill. It benefits them because then they have an ESG footprint. So you don't need to sit back and, and just accept things how they are. I think you can start you can start working with the ESG departments in your company and, you know, seeing if that's the kind of thing you can get involved in or at the very least sharing your ideas. I know that we work with a couple of oil companies. There are funders and they are installing renewables. You know, they're building wind farms. So I think each company is looking for their journey to net zero and you listener could be that person that helps them move towards that. Yeah, that and that's excellent because, um, and I think you you nailed it. Like it's, we, we just got to speak up. You know, when we see a problem or we see a solution, talk about it, bring it up, and that's how we're going to. You, you know, we can't solve something if we don't have a solution for it. So um, it's the same thing in maintenance. If you know, most of the people I know, most of the, the, the failures or anything, when I'm trying to figure out what happened, I talk to the people who work on it. I talk to the people who are involved in it and they're the ones with the answers, not, 
no, not me, honestly. Like I just, I just take typically what they say and try and turn it into a project and, and make something happen with it. And it's, you know, it's the frontline workers that are the ones with the answers. They're the ones that can make those small changes at an organization that make a big difference. Um, you know, where the people that are on that front line, the ones driving the trucks, the ones turning the wrenches, the ones operating any sort of machinery, like that's where the difference is made. It's not made necessarily in that back room, uh, looking at plans and other things for the future. So you got it. It's always the people that are on the ground doing the work that ought to know what the solutions are. Yeah. And so with that, I think I will, uh, we're, we're just about at time. And so I do want to give you an opportunity. You already mentioned your um, Iron and Earth's careers page, and I will post a link to that. But is there anything else, any other events you have upcoming or anything else you want to uh, uh, put out to the audience of ways they can get involved or, or get in touch with you um, or where they can find you speaking more or anything like that? Well, we always love hearing from people. So please reach out to us at Iron and Earth, that's ironandearth.org. And we would love to hear what it is that's, that's going on with you. If you're looking to make a transition into the net zero, uh, that's what we're here for. We are here to put you uh, in touch with the resources that will empower you to be able to make that transition. Uh, we have a few projects that are coming up if any of the listeners are interested in participating in that. Uh, one is going to be in Tabor, Alberta, and that's going to be a solar install. The other one's going to be in Muscatchie, Alberta. That's a solar and wind install. Um, and we would, love, we would love to hear from you. If you're wanting to participate in any of these programs, they're free. Uh, you'll walk away with upskilling and reskilling um, knowledge. You'll be able to then uh, take that and uh, move into the net zero economy. So thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, thank you, Louisa. It was it was a lot of fun and a topic that's close to my heart. And um, so really appreciate your time and agreeing to come on onto the podcast.